coming up on The Medicine Podcast. It's a real mindfuck when you don't believe in hell anymore, but you're afraid you might go there because you don't believe in it. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, people are struggling with all this kind of confusing stuff going on and loneliness and leaving the church and all that. And a lot of people deconstructing s still have that religious impulse that they've got to do the right thing in order to get to the goal of perfection or righteousness or whatever it is. One day, though, you're going to realize you're okay. What's up, you guys? Welcome back to The Medicine Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Mushy Love Latte, the best tasting mushroom elixir on planet Earth. To check it out, go to themedicine.com. I'm sitting next to my favorite human, my partner in life and love and podcasting, Chase. What is going on, everybody? We are extra excited today. We have someone on the show that we've been following for quite some time. Uh, his work has been impacting so many and absolutely impacting our lives. And so it is with great honor that I get to welcome David Hayward, the naked pastor. Welcome to the Medicine Podcast. <laughs> Thanks very much. I, I know when when you say David Hayward, people are like, who's that? Yeah. <laughs> pastor, and then they go, oh, him. Yeah. In this world where we're recognizing each other by our at yeah. signs and handles and everything. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's people listening, maybe that, you know, are have been following you. We share your stuff on our stories all the time. And, you know, they they usually get great feedback. People like Harding and like, oh my gosh, this totally resonates. Um, a big portion of our audience are also going through or have gone through some level of religious mm -hmm. or dogmatic deconstruction and they're asking mm -hmm. these questions that we've been asking the last for me about four to five years chase much longer <laughs> chase has been since birth but this yeah. is i think a really important part of the individual self is is asking the question of like okay these were the beliefs that were handed to me when i was born right. basically what makes sense to me? Does this make sense? Does it resonate with me? Does Is what I see in the world actually match the teachings that I'm getting on Sunday? And, and is there overlap or is there a gap? And so um, we are super excited to dive into your work and your story. Before mm. we do all that, we have one question that we ask every guest. The first question is, what do you love in your life? What aspect of your life do you love so much that you wish you could gift it to every human? Oh, man, I have so much. One? Just one? Okay, uh, you know, I, maybe most people say my wife or, you know, my family or whatever. And those are absolutely top of the list. But maybe to be a little different, what I really enjoy about my life is creativity and just being able to be creative all the time and actually being, uh, you know, it supports me. Uh, I'm making a living for my creativity. So that brings me a lot of joy and uh, to be able to do what I love and passionate about. And um, yeah, that I'm, I can do that full time. So that's, that's a lot of fun. A lot yeah. of joy. Yeah. There. Yeah. 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 We are grateful for your yeah. creativity as well. Yeah. And I I think too, it seems at least observing from afar, I know we're we're just getting to know you, but at least observing you, um, it really seems like you've found that ikigai, the the intersection of something you love, something you're good at, something the world needs, and something that you can make a living with. And that's yeah. 
um, I think uh, what a lot of people are searching for. So yeah, I totally get that. It's a it's a huge blessing. And if if everyone in the world had that, I think that we would be living in a very different world. Yeah, but you know, um, here's the thing: people like too often we we look at people like as as if it's a snapshot, right? And when in fact it's it's a movie, like it's a whole long film, and uh, it's taken me a long, long time and a lot of hard work to to get to this place. So uh, I think a lot of people despair that, you know, they, they're, they're never going to be able to do and live by what they're passionate about. But it doesn't happen overnight. Like you need to really be really want it and stick with it. And um, like I did, like so many others do, um, sticking with it. And, and uh, one day, um, I've seen it happen over and over again. It will materialize, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. 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 You're so, it, it's so spot on. It's like, we can find what we're love, what we love and what we're passionate about, but it doesn't, it's not absent from the daily mm-hmm. work and yeah. being passionate enough to be persistent and to be patient. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I love that. I love that. Yeah. yeah, I think a lot of people say, what's your number one ingredient for, you know, you being able to do what you do? And I just say, I wouldn't go away. You, you, <laughs> yeah. can't, you can't get rid of me. Yeah. And, and that's the number one ingredient, seriously. Like I've been doing art for my whole life. And then um, I started my blog, uh, Naked Pastor, in 2005. And, um, you know, it took many, many years to finally decide to make the decision to take the leap to do it mm. full time. And, you know, and I've been sort of uh, doing that now for more than 10 years. But yeah, it it takes a while. I'm just not going away. Just keep keep on keeping on, you know? Yeah, yeah I no, love that. That's, love that. That's a great, great way to put it. Um, I I want to get into your your story and, and how you got here. But first, mm-hmm. how did you choose the name Naked Pastor? Where did that come from? <laughs> I get that all the time. Um, you know, uh, I, I first URL I had the f- first blog name was David Hayward CA D and the CA stands for Canada. That's where I live by the way. And, um, that sounded boring. And then I, I got, I got church pundit and that sounded pretentious. And then, uh, I, I was just trying to think of a good name. And at that time, um, the Naked Chef, the Naked Archaeologist, Naked Truth, all those things were kind of popular. And I thought, you know, I want to do a blog as a pastor. I was a pastor at the time. And I thought, I want to, I want people to see the real life of a pastor. Like, I want to pull back the curtain, let people see what really goes on in the life of pastor, what really goes on in the church, uh, be super honest, super vulnerable, super real, super raw, and and just tell the truth of what's going on. And um and so naked, that's what the naked means. Yeah. Uh, it's just being raw and real. No, no pretense, no adornment. Mm. And um, so then I, I I don't know what I did, but uh, I, I was thinking about it. And then weeks later, I got an email saying, congratulations, you won the auction for nakedpastor.com. <laughs> oh, I'm like, great. oh, my God, how much money? Like, I, I had no idea I'd entered an auction. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> oh. But. I was the only one and it was like 68 bucks or oh, something. Yeah. So, I think it's um, worked out for you. Yeah. Yeah. It I mean, it, it sticks. Yeah. I love it. I think it, I think it attracts many who are, who are uh, 
willing to be exposed uh, uh, and yeah. and yeah. and open the door to vulnerability. You There's know, another word, exposed. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, we know you as as an incredible artist who shares profound wisdom through the medium of of drawing and through humor because so much of it's just absolutely hilarious and uh we know that messages you know the pictures speak a thousand words drawing mm -hmm. art mm -hmm. comedy can sometimes you know drop insight on you almost out of the corner of your eye bypassing mm -hmm. these ego filters that we may have that we may not be able to listen uh mm -hmm. to directly from somebody um and so we we know you as this this really this healer in so many ways through the through the modalities of art and comedy but would love to hear about your journey from like you said mm -hmm. a, a pastor uh, working mm -hmm. in the ministry through through and evolving into the space of becoming the the naked pastor and and having left the ministry and so if you mm -hmm. could a little bit you know backfill uh the story a bit how, how did yeah. you get into being a pastor and, and then the process of deconstructing I don't know how I became a pastor. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, I grew up in a religious home, a very Christian home, you know, and my dad was a, a policeman who was transferred a lot around Ontario and Canada. And so we weren't at faithful to any one church or denomination. We would just go to the most convenient happening place in town, you know. And um, when I was a teenager, though, we ended up Baptist. That's where I got really born again. And then, then we switched to Pentecostal, where I got the mm. Holy Spirit, you know. And then um, from there, I decided to go to a Pentecostal Bible college in the United States. And um, I went through there, got a degree in Bible and theology, met Lisa. Then we got married two days after graduation. And then we went to Boston, where I went to seminary. And then, long story short, I ended up in the Presbyterian Church, got ordained Presbyterian, um, got another master's, like an MDiv, and uh, left after a while. I got bored with the Presbyterian Church. And the difference between Pentecostals and Presbyterians, I've, I heard a really good analogy. It's like this. With the Pentecostals, you always feel like you're trying to put out a fire. But with the Presbyterians, you always, always feel like you're trying to light one. Mm. And so that was kind of my experience. And um, so Lisa and I kind of missed the, I don't know, um, the passion, I guess, of, sure. of a more charismatic kind of a community and and the music and et cetera. So we ended up in the Vineyard Church. Uh, I don't know if you've heard about that, but, you know, if nobody out there knows what it means, it's kind of a mix between Baptist and Pentecostal, kind of evangelical theology with you know, miracles and stuff. Yeah. Okay. And, 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 and contemporary music. And, and so we ended up there in, in a vineyard church. I pastored a vineyard church until 2010 when I decided I couldn't stay anymore in the church. I felt it was constricting my growth. And um, I decided to leave the ministry like overnight. Mm. And yeah. Yeah, terrifying, terrifying moment. Uh, but I I left I and decided I was going to see if I could make Naked Pastor a full-time gig because I'd I'd been doing it now for 10 for five years. And and so I decided to put all my effort into it. And um, as well as other things like books. I have an online community called The Lasting Supper um you know art all the all kinds of things and you know what it it worked 
and and fortunately, my wife's a nurse, so together, uh, you know, it it works. And um, I mean, I'm doing a lot better than I was at the beginning, but um, and so when I when I left the ministry in 2010, that I'd already been deconstructing for a long time theologically, but for us, what the real challenge came when we had to deconstruct from the church, and uh, and from the ministry. And uh, that was really, really hard. Mm. Um, you know, we'd been deconstructing sort of together for decades and kind of like a, a slow glacial melt, you know, but yeah. leaving the church was like overnight. And I lost my sense of purpose in life. I lost my vocation. We lost our friends, our my salary. You know, so many things happened at once. It was like the perfect storm that created quite a lot of crisis and trauma and, you know, in our relationship, including, and uh, we had a, a rough couple of years and, um, but we found our feet again and we're doing better than ever. And, uh, and, you know, doing, putting all my effort into Naked Pastor to, to help others through that process. Yeah. Mm. Beautiful. You know, that, like, I, I believe there's two deconstructions. One is theological, the other is ecclesiological. Yeah, let's get into that. I would love to. I would okay. love to unpack both of those. One, I, I love that yeah. you've been. I think you may have been some of the first uh, people that I've heard use the phrase deconstruction, which yeah, is I now think I got it from. It's you. now become a very common term for people who grew up Christian and have yeah. departed mm-hmm. in some way. Maybe defining uh, deconstruction, and then in these buckets that you've categorized, unpacking those. Yeah. So I, I was uh, as a vineyard pastor, I was sent to a, a weekend workshop on hermeneutics, which is how to how to study, how to read the Bible, and um, we were given a bunch of textbooks to read beforehand, and a lot of them were critical of the deconstruction movement, the deconstructionist movement, which was started by Jacques Derrida in France a long time ago. Uh, it was it's a school of philosophy. And basically, is it's hard to understand. Um, it's very deep, but it's basically there's no such thing as objective truth in a text. Everything is questioned because not only do we not really know the mind of the writer, the the writer doesn't even know their own mind, right? And all the influences, and then there's the transmission of the text, and then the lens we're reading through. Like it's impossible. Like, and this is the topic of a lot of my cartoons. When somebody says the Bible clearly says immediately, you don't right. understand hermeneutics. Like right. the Bible doesn't clearly say anything. So anyway, I was supposed to read these texts on deconstruction to turn me off of it or to warn me about it, but I became a convert. I thought <laughs> this exactly describes my spiritual process right now, where I'm questioning everything. Not just theology, but where we get our theology from, um, and you know how it's packaged, and how it's custom made, and how we all grow up in communities that you know foster that and nurture that and encourage that, and um, you know promote it and marshal it, everything. And so I was questioning everything, you know, my theology, the Bible, inspiration, the existence of you know, even God, uh, the divinity of Jesus, even the existence of a historical Jesus, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, yeah. It was, dev- it was devastating. And, and, uh, but I started using the term in 2008, I, I used the word deconstruction. I checked in my blog and I, the first time I used it was in 2008. 
And then in 2009, somebody said, you're starting to sound like a deconstructionist. And I thought, you know what? Okay. And so I started talking about deconstruction way back then, like how long ago mm. is that? So, yeah. Mm. Uh, and, and yeah, deconstruction now, everybody's talking about it. But for me, uh, deconstruction is just normal, spiritual, personal growth. It's not a phase. It's not a some kind of a disease, you know, like spiritual COVID or something. Like <laughs> right. It's just, uh, it's just natural. It's only natural to question our beliefs and, um, you know, to like Mimi, when you were saying, you know, you were questioning when we question our beliefs and everything. And, uh, is that really true? Does that really match reality that so few people have the courage to go there? Yeah. You know, um, to, to say what I believe does that actually make sense? Like, does that line up with yeah. what I actually know to be true and experience in life? Like, mm -hmm. that's a super, super scary question to ask. So, um, but that's, I think, what deconstruction entails. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. it's one reason it's scary. Certainly there's, there's multiple and many, but I think one reason it's scary is because in the conversation around religion, the person is thinking about the afterlife. And if I don't believe this, what mm -hmm. is going to happen to me? And that can be a really scary place to step into to say, you know what? I don't really believe in hell. I don't really believe in this heaven place as a physical place or or whatever the person is deconstructing, right? It It is tied to the afterlife. And so much of our teaching and um, teach our teaching meaning what we, you know, were taught, you know, mm -hmm. everything is kind of driven by these concepts of heaven and hell and fear of going one place and looking forward to going to the other place. And so mm -hmm. to step back and to start to question that, yeah. it's like, well, what does it mean? What does it mean for me in the afterlife if I don't believe this or if I do question it? Yeah. And, and, and the, so that was like, that's like one component of the deconstruction is the theology. And you have this sort of like crisis where you start to question, wait, is there a hell? What is sin? Do I even believe in sin? You know, this this divine being named God also has a son. There seems to be contradictions all over the place in the Bible about this or lack of clarity. And so like definitely for me and my, my story, I grew up evangelical Christian. I actually got to my Presbyterian college and the curriculum is you, you're, you're actually encouraged whatever... Um, uh, study, you know, I was an accounting and a business major, but you're you're forced into a core curriculum at the school, which I actually find really amazing of history of the church, religion, uh, of major religious history across, you know, all generally five or six major world religions, history of philosophy, psychology, sociology, and then the development of your worldview is this idea prior to, you know, graduating as a senior. And I got into church history, religious history, philosophy, psychology, and I was like, "These aren't lining up." Yeah, what you what you're suggesting to me is contradictory to what the the whole idea of my upbringing um, looks like. And so I actually got by the time I'm a senior in college, I'm like, "I'm not buying this, guys." And you've prevented you presented me the evidence, and so that was kind yeah, of like yeah. this theological deconstruction. Which uh -huh. then led for me to a, a deconstruction of identity and community because the uh -huh. orientation of 
how I identified myself was always through the framework and the structure of the Christian community that we came out of. And so after having changed my own perspectives on God, the divine, salvation, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm then led into isolation, feelings of aloneness, because my commute, who am I? These big mm-hmm. questions, because the context with which I, I found myself through for 20 some years was now gone. And I, I'd never felt more alone in my entire life at 20, you know, early 20s as I'm deconstructing this. So I was curious as you as you broke apart deconstruction into the theology side. And then did you say ecle- Ecclesiastes or, or an ecclesiastical version of this? I, ecclesiological, uh, which yeah. means church. Okay. And, yeah. Because I saw people who were claiming to have deconstructed when what they had deconstructed from was the church. Like, so if you deconstruct, theologically, I predict you're probably going to deconstruct from the church because the church, in my opinion, generally doesn't provide a safe place for people to ask questions, serious questions. However, if you if you experience uh, frustration with the church or abuse in the church or religious trauma, or you know you're fed up with its uh, uh, greed, ambition, hierarchy the patriarch you know those kinds of things yeah. and you you say that's it or or like a lot of people do they're like the church has lost its origins it's no longer like the early church i'm quitting we need to return to the early days what i observe is that people who deconstruct from the church don't necessarily deconstruct theologically got it in mm. fact sometimes they're even more fundamental in their beliefs sure because the church needs to be pure and you know we've lost our roots and blah 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 yeah okay really interesting yeah so deconstructing theologically though if you start there uh you have two choices one is to keep your mouth shut (laughs) and keep it to yourself or if you do come out spiritually with these questions you're either gonna feel the necessity to leave or you'll be invited to leave right so that's what i observe do you yeah. call yourself or identify yourself as a christian today i don't like labels i don't right. use labels and at this point people a lot of people are going oh here we go like nailing jello to the wall kind of thing slippery like a snake um but i'm i'm genuine like i um i i have a saying um my home is in Christianity, but I have cottages everywhere. And I'm yeah, really comfortable that. with that concept of like, I've drawn, I'm, I live on a river um, and there's a lot of streams that connect to it. And it's still the Kennebecasis river, but there's many sources for the river, many streams, many springs, you know, and it dumps out into the ocean, which I'm near. And I, I see that as sort of an analogy, a metaphor for human for, for me, for you, for you guys, is uh, there's many streams and I've learned to appreciate them all. Yeah, maybe Christianity is the greater part of uh, that river that's flowing through me, but there's tons of other um, streams that are flowing through me that I receive nourishment from, you know, um, mm-hmm. Judaism, Islam, the Sufis, native spirituality, atheism science buddhism zen you know we could go on and on and on right Mm -hmm. and uh, because i've researched and looked because i'm interested in the truth and not any one 
uh, school of thought possesses the truth solely. And that's just my view of the world is mm. that we, there's one reality and a million interpretations of that reality. Have you heard of zombie cells? So as we age, everyone accumulates zombie cells, technically called senescent cells, in their body. Senescent cells cause symptoms of aging, like aches and pains, slow workout recoveries, low mental and physical energy, and these cells become like outdated furniture in the house, old and worn out, and not serving any useful function for our health anymore. Recently, our friends from Neurohacker have created a really unique formula for addressing these zombie cells called Qualia Senolytic. Much like exfoliating dead skin cells off your skin, Qualia Senolytic removes those worn out senescent cells to allow for the healthy cells in the body to thrive. I started taking Qualia Senolytic last spring and immediately felt the effect. Nagging aches and pains began to subside and the restorative effect, especially after workouts, began to amplify. We spoke at length with the Neurohacker team to ensure that the quality as well as the efficacy was up to our standards, and it is. The formula is non-GMO, it's gluten-free, and the ingredients are actually meant to complement one another. I already take a handful of supplements every day, so the fact that you only take Senolytic for two days a month made it even more appealing. I've recommended or gifted Senolytic to some of my closest friends, and after months of really positive feedback, I am excited to officially recommend Qualia Senolytic to our community and our listeners of the medicine. To start this cellular rejuvenation process and prevent your body from entering the zombie cell apocalypse, use code THEMEDICINE. That's THEMEDICINE, T-H-E-M-E-D-I-C-I-N to save 15% at checkout at neurohacker.com backslash themedicine. Enjoy. And I'm interested in every single one. And um, so I just consume, consume, consume. I'm interested. Um, because I, like so many of us, are interested in what the truth is. And I don't think it's found in any one place. It's sort of like this river uh, that's so, you know, mixed and and rich, you know? Yeah. In God, I, I wish I could have talked to you 20, uh, when I was about 21, 22 years old. Beautiful. What, what me, for me you? Too. I wish I could have talked to myself when I was that old. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's a very isolating feeling to to depart yeah. from that after having 20 some years in that framework. But there were just for me just some sticking points that I could not look past any yeah. longer. And and I'm curious for you yeah. what if you if you had to pull a few together around, you know, Christianity, what were some of those whether they be contradictions or even just uh truths that had been identified? Um, in that space that that for you, you just couldn't see past any further or or enable any further being a part of that community that ultimately led to your departure. My deconstruction began on my graduation day from seminary. Mm. I remember the moment. So I, I'd finished my master's, I'd finished all my papers, all my presentations, all that. And I, for some reason, we were down Harvard Coop in Boston. And um, I was, we were in a bookstore and I noticed the book and the title intrigued me. And every time I mention this, people are like following up, like, what was the name of the book? So I'm going to tell you Uh, it's James breach, the silence of Jesus. Mm. And it was written a long, long time ago. Like I graduated in 80, 
85. So uh, I, I picked it up and I read the book and it devastated me because up to this point, I, 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 I was a Bible person. So I got my, my BA in Bible and theology. I went and studied Bible and theology, New Testament studies at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary under Dr. Gordon Fee, the great, one of the greatest New Testament mm. um, critics. And, I, and then I was heading to University of Toronto to get my PhD in New Testament studies. And um, I had Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and theological French, theological German, like all this stuff. Like I was so into the Bible. I still have my Bible from when I was a teenager, all underlined in colored crayons and everything. But this book undermined my belief in the inspiration of Scripture. Mm. All of my theology rested on that cornerstone. <laughs> and this book pulled that out. And it was like it was like the Jenga block tower, just like mm. and, and I I was so devastated that I, I actually had my uh, graduation robe on and everything. And I was in shock. And Lisa grabbed me by the shoulder and said, you've got to go to your graduation ceremony. <laughs> and like, that's where my, that's precisely where my deconstruction mm. began. For someone who maybe didn't grow up in the church or as a Christian or in religion, and uh, you mentioned inspiration, can you just explain that a little bit? Because this is such a turning point. This is such a pivotal moment in your story. What do you mean by inspiration? So there's different levels of inspiration. One is that it's a divine book that dropped out of heaven. Or, or what I believed at the time was that God, through the Holy Spirit, inspired men, because they are all men, inspired men to write these words. And so there's no error. There's no error theologically or in regards to faith. Um, you know, there there might be historical stuff and all that that might be questioned but theologically and in regards of faith and life it's without error infallible okay so that's what i believed but this book so the, what this book did was it it took the the all the sayings of jesus and out of all the sayings of jesus this research was done where it came down to there was possibly seven sayings of Jesus that were actually authentic. Mm. And, and the rest were put in his mouth by the writers or it was just oral history, like, like legend or yeah. And you, myth, you, you see myth. that across major religions, these Christ figures, oh, yeah. there's so much overlap and these are oh, be yeah. beautiful words of wisdom. But yeah. whether they tie directly to the literal words that Jesus of Nazareth actually spoke is where this gets foggy. But for me, though, the the crisis was everything I believed came from the Bible. And now the Bible had been taken from me. And now I had to figure out, okay, how do I move forward? Now, some people have different reactions to this kind of a trauma. Some are like, oh, I've been duped. This whole thing's been bullshit. I'm out of here. Bye. I'm now an atheist, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Or I'm going to try, you know, uh, yoga or mushrooms or not your kind of mushrooms. <laughs> um, or I'm going to, you know, just try something else. Or 
the way I decided was, okay, I've grown up in the church. This has been important to me. I feel somehow uh, I don't feel I can reject it all. I don't feel I've been 100% duped, but I got to figure out what's right and what's not. I got to I got to sift through all this and figure it out. It took me 30 friggin' years <laughs> while I was in the ministry to, to figure it out. And so fortunately, uh, like I said before, I wasn't, we, you know, we, we didn't feel any loyalty to any one denomination or anything like that. So I, I gravitated towards churches that I felt I could be more exploratory and uh, that I feel I could travel together with the congregation rather than lead them, you know? Um, and sort of speaking from the pulpit down, uh, it was more, mm. we would find out together kind of a mm. thing. And, and that worked until it didn't work anymore. Um, you know, in 2010, when I felt the church could no longer handle that kind of pastoral model and they wanted a, a real, you know, charismatic leader, strong hierarchical pastor kind of thing when I, I was more interested in, you know, let's, let's find out together. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's, that's how it all began for me was um, you ask what are some of the big things? That's the big one, the yeah. inspiration of scripture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. and then from there, you know, it all, it all sort of like a domino effect from there. It went on. Okay. Who's in, who's out because everybody seemed to claim to know who was in, who was out, but I, this doesn't make sense to me anymore. Um, and I felt if we're all, you know, I I remember some of those verses that like God is, God was in Christ reconciling the whole world to himself, or um, he is the all in all and all these kinds of things. Um, the reconciliation of all things. I thought all appears a lot. Yeah. <laughs> then I thought, okay, you know, and I, I sort of tended to think that way that we're all in, but I couldn't figure it out theologically mm-hmm. because I'd been so embedded in theology. So yeah. that took a long time to figure out as well. One thing that something you said just brought up for me is something that I thought as a probably middle schooler, maybe high schooler, but it was this, you know, this phrase of unconditional love. And I don't know if it, I don't even think that that term appears in the Bible per se, but you do hear it. I heard it at least spoken about a lot from pastors or even teachers as we went to a a Christian school, you know, Bible study leaders, God is unconditional love, unconditional love, unconditional love. And I didn't ask these questions out loud, but in my head, I was wondering like, okay, if God is unconditional love, then how how does a place like hell exist for people who have never even heard about Jesus or God? Not necessarily, I wasn't even thinking about people who heard it and said no, but like, what about people in other countries that like literally just don't have the chance? Or, you know, God is unconditional love, but he hates these things. God hates these things, whether it's homosexuality or debauchery or whatever it is we're so quick as humans to assign sort Mm -hmm. of like personifying, just humanizing God as if we know, we know that God hates divorce. That was a big one too. And in my family, I come from a blended family and it was like (laughs) so like disruptive to like my high school Mm -hmm. mind. Like, okay, if God is unconditional love, how does he hate these things or these types of people, these groups of people. How is that 
the reality. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I remember uh, um, I was a country pastor. I had three churches, and I was perplexed about this very thing. Because, and I, I, I even had a system in play where I was okay. I'm going to figure this out. So, I'm going to start studying Judaism. That's the nearest to Christianity. Then Islam. You know the three major uh, Abrahamic faiths, and then, um, then I'm going to go to maybe Hinduism, and then Buddhism, and then Zen, and then maybe Sufism, and etc. You know, I was going to until I figured this out. How how you know? And you know, I was reading um, Jesus and the Buddha. You know the the different and in, in seminary actually, I, one of my papers. Uh, um, I actually compared some of the sayings of Jesus to the, some of the sayings of Buddha and how similar they were. And even though, you know, I might have made an A on the paper, it blew my mind how, you know, how 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 similar these yeah. sayings are. Just like you said earlier, Chase, in that whole region, um, many religions shared many of the same stories and sayings. So, but I remember the day when I realized, wait a minute, love isn't, Love isn't just like a feeling like, and then, you know, that saying of Jesus where he says the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike and the sun shines. And I, that's, that's to me what love is. It's mm-hmm. like rain. It's like love, it, uh, like sun. It just shines on everybody. It's indiscriminate. Yeah. I, So, you know, like gravity, they might not have known what gravity was back then, but it's like, it pulls everything, everybody. And it's indiscriminate. And that to me is what love is. It's it's not like a sentimental kind of a feeling. It's 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 not like emotional. You know, we're we get into a little different feel when we talk about romantic love or sexual love or whatever, but when it comes to this love we call un- unconditional love, that's what it's like. Sun, rain, gravity, it's everywhere, all the time, indiscriminate. And when I talk that way, or when I draw cartoons about that, it really offends the theological mind, the dogmatic mind, mm-hmm. um, because it thinks it, it knows who's in and who's out, who does get this love and who doesn't get this love. And then, you know, you know, I, I've been, I've been there, I've been there, done that. I got the t-shirt. I studied reformed theology. I studied Calvin. I studied, you know, all these guys and, how they they break it down to you know soteriological love <laughs> right. you know this kind of love and this kind of love and this kind of love and it's like ah love is love yeah and and uh it's and it's it it's indiscriminate that's the best word i can come up for it mm-hmm. yeah and, and you get these tastes of it and i've i've been through a process of having thrown the spiritual baby out with the christian bathwater and there are these little nuggets, at least in the communities that I grew up in, where you're in worship, which is this, you know, portion of the church service. Sunday service that includes singing. And you get this feeling of spirit that is metaphysical and it's it's shared and it's collective with the community. You have underneath this this brick and mortar building, you have deep, vulnerable connections with other human beings. You have moments of uh, feeling something beyond yourself that feels as if it's purpose related and encapsulated in this, it's branded by 
churchianity, we like to call it. But mm-hmm. but there are these little chords of real love, and you feel that. And I think that's what mm-hmm. keeps us so attached to these communities is that we've gotten these little slivers of that mm-hmm. unconditional feeling. And um, of course, I've left this framework and have experienced that in a, a bunch of other domains in my life and and clearly see why Christianity has resonated for, for so many and, and been so powerful for so long is because it facilitates those types of activities um, that feel very, very real. But then there's this sort of like big leap to adopt everything else that comes with it in that brick and mortar location we call church, all the way from the dogmatic theology to some of these very societal renditions of how to interpret the scriptures in a way that we can use as law and dictate who you can marry or date or what's a sin and what's not a sin and whether the formula for you getting to heaven or hell is shaking out to be, you know, in your favor. And that's where I tend to to want to depart. But mm-hmm. in the separation, oftentimes the deconstruction mm-hmm. process, we lose, I lose, I should say I lost this ability to see some of those really important attributes of what the religion and the the community of the religion offered. Do you see in your work and have you connected with folks who are spiritually thirsty, even after this departure or deconstruction process? Because that's where I see so much of a an open arm uh, from you, the naked pastor, it, to say, hey, there's still some really incredible modalities for experiencing God or the divine or however you want to articulate that while mm-hmm. also leaving behind the dogma. And and mm-hmm. so maybe if you could go into a little bit, speaking to the person who's left, but still feels of or might feel a void of spirituality, might be looking for more of a access to unconditional love or God. And, mm-hmm. and how do you work with people in that space? One of the things I'm very adamant about Um, is that I don't publish my statement of faith, for example. I don't even have one. (laughs) But (laughs) if I did, I wouldn't publish it because what happens when you do that is people say, oh, I like his, you know, what he believes. I'm going to follow him. Because I've actually had people sit across from me in my pastor study and say, we pay you to tell us what to believe. Oh man. Mm. And a lot, that's what a lot of people want. Right. We're, I know we're, that. We're, we're so groomed to outsource yeah. thinking. It keeps yeah. you in the child archetype when you're looking to someone right. else to tell you what to believe. Exactly. So I refuse what, what I, what I want people to do is to become spiritually independent. That is they become the masters of their own destiny, you know, the captains of their own ship, that they take the steering wheel of their own lives and decide how to be spiritual. That's our right. That's our mm, responsibility I love is that. to decide how to be spiritual. And if for you it means becoming a, a you know, a, an ethical atheist or whatever, or if you want to become an evangelical pastor, I, I don't know if even that's even suggested anymore. I don't, evangelicalism is in real trouble. But if you wanted to become a pastor or whatever, I'm here to help you get from your point A to your point B, not your point A to my point B. Right. Mm -hmm. So I want you to grow in your own way. Just like our three kids are very, very different. Um, Three different adults, but 
they are the masters of their own destiny. They're the captains of their own ship. They drive their own spiritual lives and decide how to be spiritual. And even though it might be very different from us and from each other, and some others might think it's weird or, you know, different or unusual or whatever, it doesn't matter to them because they're, they've chosen things that help them grow and mature as human beings. It's like a, it's like a buffet. When you go into the buffet, we used to put the food on their plate and then, you know, then we let them choose and then we'd add vegetables and then eventually, ah, fuck it. We just let them choose what yeah. to eat because they know yeah. it's best. Yeah. And, and, and so it's the same spiritually people, if they're given the autonomy um, and the authority over their own lives, they will choose what's best for them and figure out what works and what doesn't work. And the, the difficulty comes though, like you've sort of intimated a couple of times is that when we often, when we do decide to do that, we, we can no longer feel really comfortable in, in most churches and we end up having to leave. And my observation, and I think my experience too, is the biggest pain point of leaving the church is loneliness, like that loss of community. Mm. and I remember when I left the church, like we'd been in our whole lives and all of a sudden it wasn't there anymore. And it wasn't just Sunday service. It was the whole support, you know, everything, yeah. no other, no other group. I don't think offers the same thing when you walk in and you decide you're going to be a part that you're handed friends on a platter. Mm -hmm. I mean, You've got friends, you've got babysitters, you've got activities every night of the week, you've got potluck suppers, you've got oh, yeah. donuts and coffee for Sunday morning, you've got mechanics, you've got help people to help you move, you've got pickup trucks, you've got, you know, you name it, everybody's there. The whole it's like a ghetto of support. Yeah. And mm -hmm. but that's the problem. It is, yeah. And so when I when I left the church, uh I, I tried different things and I realized, you know what, nothing comes close. Um nothing comes close. And then that's when I started thinking, because I was also studying on cults and everything at the same time. And I realized, mm, maybe that's the trade-off is that deep, intense intimacy mm -hmm. comes with some, comes with some, you know, yeah. control yeah. and what I call spiritual blackmail, where they know too much about you. Right. And so now I encourage people, don't look for something to replace the church. There's there's other things um, out there. And, and maybe analyze, you know, maybe that spiritual abuse I submitted to and was sort of participated in, in my own, you know, I, I was kind of complicit in my own abuse. Maybe it was because that's what it took to stay. You know what I mean? Yep. Mm-hmm. Hey friend, if you deal with brain fog, memory lapses, and sluggish thinking, then you need to try Qualia Mind. When it comes to nourishing the brain, Qualia Mind is hands down the best that we've tried. When I take it, I feel less distracted and I notice that I spend less time searching for the right words, whether I'm writing or speaking. This is because Qualia Mind was designed by a team of committed scientists using the most bioavailable ingredients to support the four pillars of cognition, energy, focus, memory, and drive. After only a few days, most people feel more mental energy, deeper mental clarity, attention, and focus. 
In fact, if you don't have clear thinking in 100 days, they'll give you your money back. And right now they are giving listeners of The Medicine an insane deal, $100 off your first order. To try the best brain fuel on earth, go to neurohacker.com forward slash the medicine. That's neurohacker.com forward slash T-H-E-M-E-D-I-C-I-N to get your first bottle for only $39. Or just check the show notes below for the direct link. Cheers to happy, productive brains and cheers to Qualia Mind. Okay, back to the show. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of lot to unpack there. I know. Yeah. Lisa and I had to start from scratch, and and make friends from scratch. And we were never taught how to do that yeah. as adults. Yeah. Because they were given to you um, yeah. automatically. So it's a skill set. That's a big deal. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you brought up cults and studying uh, cults. Uh, I think you said cults, not occult, right? Or maybe it was both. Cults, cults, cults. Yeah. yeah, okay. Because it's it's like a love language for Chase and I to find a, a good cult documentary and watch it. It's just like fascinating to us, isn't it? But yeah. but and there's so many, obviously, um, and some of them are far worse than others, of course. But it's so interesting when you know something will come up, people will be sharing about their experience or why they came and, and then how the teaching sort of morphed into something that didn't feel right. But then they their whole community was here, their whole life was here. So they stayed. There was a big risk of the question, like asking questions had a big price tag attached to it, which was losing your community. And I think, yeah, to your point, I think it keeps people in much longer than if that community wasn't there. And there's so many times where we're listening to a cult documentary. It doesn't matter what the thing is, what the cult is. We look at each other and we're like, that sounds really familiar yeah. to something that we learned in seventh grade Bible class or, you know, Sunday yeah. school. And I'm not saying it is a cult. I'm saying that there are similarities that when you step out and you're looking with fresh eyes and you're really asking questions and you're not afraid to ask questions. I'm not afraid to ask any question now, uh, looking at my upbringing. When you step out fully, you start to see the similarities between dogmatic religion and these cults that people sort of make fun of like oh you were in a cult it's like sometimes i want to say like yeah it kind of feels like i was in a cult a little yeah. bit a little bit um <laughs> and i'm not i i don't i really don't want to offend people this is my experience after coming out and asking questions about it and seeing the similarities um this mm -hmm. is just my process I, I i really don't want to offend people who who find value in the church and they found a place that they really love that is not the point of this conversation. The point of this conversation is to support the people who are in a deconstructive phase and who are asking questions because, like you said, it's really scary and lonely and it can be terrifying for yeah, people yeah. to and completely uproot their life. Right. And that's right. Uh, one, I, I don't even know if, you know, I think cults are, are certainly doing something right because they, they foster these feelings of some of the most peak and profound human experiences under the domain of this community. And obviously there's a big difference between culture and cult. And that's kind of the nuance of where, where you get into a cult as it funnels down, it gets a little more, uh, a little less life affirming and more uh, isolated on one individual or one set of individuals. But there are certain attributes that are, that are like literally 
critical to the human experience as it pertains to experiencing love and fulfillment and satiation. And the way that I look at this often is um, religion and these sections of of epistemology are not unlike how you know we're we're big fitness and wellness uh, individuals. And we look at all of these different, let's say, exercise protocols, and you've got CrossFitters and, you know, cardiovascular, uh, long distance trainers, and and you've got uh, people who do yoga, and then you've got weightlifters and athletes. There's this diverse array of physical endeavors that various individuals pursue in order to experience health. Mm -hmm. And there are many ways to experience health. And mm-hmm. one might say that CrossFit is the best way and others might say that, you know, long distance cardio or weightlifting or bodybuilding is the way that they experience health. Great. I'm kind of mm-hmm. here for all of all the flavors of the ice cream, mm-hmm. um, but I'm less yeah. interested if someone is telling me, no, 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 no. The only way to experience health is mm-hmm. by doing CrossFit. Right. And that's where, you know, I tend to to draw the line. But But shifting this conversation a little bit into because we could n- nitpick for hours on on some of the contradictions and some of the challenges and where i'm really really interested is some of the programming and some of the patterns that were built in so many of us who grew up in this community in this environment don't go away easily and they are often subconscious patterns that are played out in our life events and it only mm-hmm. takes it takes something like your artwork that just radically communicates an idea that you had no idea was actually playing out in your life or how you can see those patterns playing out in the lives of others, other decision makers in your life, communities that you're a part of. And so I'd love to get into talking about what you see as some of the major patterns for individuals who grew up religious that show up in their life, whether they're Uh still attached to the religion or not. Um, for instance, we talk often about purity culture and the shame and guilt associated with sex, sexuality, relationships. Modesty. Modesty. W- would love to get your perspective on what you would say to someone who is, let's say they're out of the religion. They're still not you know, underneath the the top to bottom, left to right orientation of Christianity that says no sex before marriage. You know, you got to stay with your husband no matter what happens. Divorce right. is a sin, but they still feel a tremendous amount of guilt and shame as it pertains to their sexual life. So, uh, do you do, have you guys seen any of my sexy Sunday cartoons? I, oh I yeah, love, every love everyone. Them. Yeah, we're always like, oh my god, look at those. Yeah, oh mm. yeah, we love it. I have so much fun with those. I'm 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 gonna make a book. Uh, yes, and I'm. I would love to title it "Fuck Purity Culture," but I don't know if it would get published. So, <laughs> but that would be a great title. Uh, and and uh, I have something like sixty nine, no joke, uh, <laughs> cartoons on purity culture so far. But I'd like to get around a hundred and I don't know thirty or forty or something, and I, and then all my posts about it and everything. But um, yeah, the that's definitely one thing. I mean. We, we can all share our, our own personal, uh, you know, what, what's been the stickiest kind of theology that's, you know, we can't, can't seem to get rid of. My big one isn't purity culture. Uh, mm. For some reason, even though uh, I grew up in a very kind of purity culture setting, when I met Lisa, I don't know, something happened. <laughs> 
where I just, yeah. I think we, it was just the fact that you're probably a healthy young male at the time. And, and yeah, but that, why? I mean, th- there, there was, there was issues around masturbation and all that kind of thing, but I'm, Lisa and I just felt really free. I mean, we, we, we didn't really consummate on, until our wedding night, but we had a lot of fun getting there. Yeah, so yeah. I don't know how, I don't know how we managed that, but yeah. we, we did. And, um, we just had a lot of, <laughs> that's kind of how we were as well. Uh, yeah. we didn't wait till our wedding night, but it was like, okay, this is not sex isn't allowed, but everything Correct. up until penetration is allowed. Yeah, and yeah. and Chase's dad even told him when you were in high school, he was like, you know what, son? Fooling around is a gift from God yeah, for yeah. people who <laughs> are waiting, you know, to, to wow. for marriage, basically. So he basically gave you the go ahead, yeah. like, you know, have fun. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's great. I never got that. No. <laughs> um, so um but my i'll tell you what my big one is um i was very i I still am i guess very intense about spirituality very interested in it and then i had a a a very profound experience when i was very young in the ministry where i i realized how shallow i was as spiritually and um i went down this rabbit hole of mysticism uh, and it started with Henry Nowen, and then it went to Thomas Merton, and these are like Roman Catholic kind of mystics. Uh, and then it went to, you know, Gandhi and Zen Buddhism and blah, 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 you know, that whole thing, meditation and and all. And I sort of took this, Lisa calls it my Gandhi phase, where I decided that poverty was the best way to live the life of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's the health wealth gospel. For those who don't know, it's Jesus, God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. Yep. And then there's the other one where you need to be like Jesus who didn't even have a place to lay his head at night. Like, you know, that kind of poverty. And I chose that one. Mm. <laughs> and I developed really unhealthy um, beliefs around money, success, you know, selling my art, um, you know, promoting anything I did, Yeah, you know, all this kind of thing was like, went against my core beliefs. Uh, It was, it was painful, very, very painful. And I still, that's one thing that's very, very sticky. It It was so sticky for me that I actually wrote a book, uh, money is spiritual. Saw that. And to me, that was me trying to exercise my demons. And and it really, really did help. I still got a ways to go where I'm afraid of making too much money or afraid of being too successful or being afraid of being too well-known or being popular or anything like this. Um, And, you know, driving a nice car, living in a nice house, going on vacation, enjoying a nice bottle of wine or a single malt scotch, you know what I mean? Like a expensive cigar, whatever. These things to me are, I feel like I'm trespassing, you know, Mm. and and, um, denying Christ (laughs) somehow. Mm. I mean, I don't think in those theological terms anymore. And here was my strategy. I actually decided 
It was almost like this. God, if you're real, you're going to have to forgive me for the next few years because in advance, I'm asking for advanced forgiveness because I am going to get, I'm going to become ambitious. I'm going to try to sell my art. I'm going to try and make money. I'm going to try and, you know, pay off debt. I'm going to try to enjoy my life and enjoy nice things. <laughs> so it was almost like I, I had to sort of make a deal that I was going to sin knowingly and um, and somehow break this limiting belief that I had in my head about, around all that stuff. Mm. And and so that was my that was my big deal. And and it's still a big deal for me because when, when I say I'm, you know, selling a, some art or promoting my book or whatever, inevitably somebody's going to come up and say, Jesus wouldn't sell his art, you know, or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, you know, it's a, that's my Achilles heel. So what was the story that you were telling yourself about being successful? If I become successful, if I make money, what does that say about me? What was that story? Yeah. So it was, do you, do you, do you guys know John Michael Talbot? Do you remember him? I don't think so. I don't think okay. so. He was a evangelical Christian who became a monk and, you know, and he sang a song, Lady Poverty, where he invited Lady Poverty into his life. And I used to sing that song because I was a musician as well. And um, so for me to, it was just being unchristlike. That's, mm. that's what the story I was telling myself. Now I've moved on way beyond that now. But at the time, that's what my struggle was, was that, you know, yeah, my, my theology was pretty morbid and, uh, you know, to die daily and uh, live on the cross and, you know, deny myself and yeah, all that kind of thing, which is very popular. A lot of people struggle with that. And I know it because when I try to do anything in terms of selling or marketing or promoting or, you know, money or anything like that. I get a lot of kickback. So yeah. it's 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 pretty interesting. That mm. was my sticky one. Now my my sexy Sundays with uh purity culture, man, the stories that people are posting in mm. the comments are yep. heartbreaking. Oh. Where, you know, a beautiful couple, they they love each other, but they can't enjoy sex. And it's just tragic, you know. Um, so I'm hoping that these will chisel away at all that kind of negative yeah. theology. What about you guys? What what was sticky for you guys? Just out of curiosity. Um, for for me, I'll speak for myself. I think Chase would join me in this, but um, for me, definitely sex and sexuality. Um, my relationship to my body, how I you know saw my body, spoke to myself. Um, mm -hmm the pressure on specifically women in the church upbringing to be modest to we have we have this I, I know the pressure of purity culture reaches men too in different ways but yeah women specifically you know I was told many times in my life you need to be careful 
um, to not dress a certain way to cause your brothers in Christ to stumble, modesty, humility. You know, we we went to a Christian school, obviously. There was always a, a dress code. Um, right. There was so much emphasis on the external, uh, making sure that your external didn't say something about you or your intentions or your worth. And then um, because there was so much heaviness and lack of education around sex and sexuality, I had zero sex education because our school basically just wanted us to bypass it and just pretend that it didn't exist. And so, you know, thankfully, I had a boyfriend in Chase where we were learning together and we felt safe with each other. And it was beautiful, just a discovery of ourselves and each other. But then there was always shame and guilt applied afterwards. And, uh, you know, the fear of getting pregnant, the fear of getting an STD and that, you know, God will not bless your marriage if you have sex before marriage. And uh, you know, all these things were, that were told to me point blank, mm-hmm. there was so much pressure to be a certain way um, as a young woman. And then moving into when we were married, this thing that had so much taboo around it, all of a sudden I have a ring on my finger and now everything is allowed. I don't even know myself. I don't even know what I like or what I don't like because I haven't had the ability or the encouragement to explore in a healthy way. And so being able to communicate sexual Mm -hmm. needs or desires or whatever is just a foreign language. It doesn't even exist. And that's what I hear a lot from young women uh, who, Mm -hmm. who may be younger than me or my age growing up in purity culture is like, there is so much sexual fuckery to untangle, especially Mm -hmm. for women um, mm-hmm. Because there is this added extra pressure on modesty and things like that. And mm-hmm. it really um, cut me off from myself and and the expression of sensuality, even with Chase when we were married is like, mm-hmm. you, you, it's not just a flip of a switch in your brain. It's not just these these programs and patterns and, and ways of be- believing, uh, you know, what reality is. They go so deep into your psyche that just having a ring on your finger doesn't magically make everything wonderful in the mm-hmm. sexual realm once you're married. So that was definitely a very sticky point for me. Yeah. 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 No, no, really, really similar for me. And there's a couple, but around the purity culture uh, realm is that we, I didn't, I went to Christian school and everything, but it wasn't, I was not like a, like a church kid in the sense that I was like, praying and reading the Bible. It was just a part of the community and that's, I was just a jock and it kind of went through the motions and it was working for me. So I didn't challenge it. Um, but I did feel the pressure of being good. And, uh, mm-hmm. as a Christian school, being in ASB and all these other things, like my image was really, really important to protect. And my Christian image of being this good kid, uh, makes good decisions. And so the fear of getting caught because mm-hmm. we yeah. were we were sexually active in high school and as teenagers and and into our early 20s was was a weight on my back that a kid should not have to feel mm-hmm. um and then anybody who's been in a committed relationship knows young novel sexual experiences are radically different than committed relationship sexual experiences or marriage sex very mm-hmm. different uh flavors flavors <laughs> of sex and so we built year you know we dated for seven years before mm-hmm. we got married yeah. and we built a sexual relationship of 
taboo because we'd had to sneak out, not tell anybody. Well, that is just a very interesting thing to integrate yeah. now into a sexual dynamic. And so weirdly enough, we had to be like risque when we were in our 20s and getting married in order to have the kind of sexual experience that both of us were looking for. Otherwise, it just kind of felt like robotic. We weren't you know? we weren't it's able like, to be lab? like we weren't able to be like, hey, I have curiosity around sex and here are some of the things that I'd be interested in. And, yeah. and I'm I'm in love with your body and I want to hear about what feels good for you. And having healthy conversations around sex was awkward and it was clunky. And so we couldn't have like yeah. non-sneaky sex even when we were married. And, and I'd be lying yeah. if I said it didn't contribute to the fact that we got divorced. Hey friend, are you like me looking for ways to age gracefully and beautifully, but also naturally? If so, then we must be aware of the nutrients that we are gifting our body and cells to resist premature aging. One of my favorite ways to do that is with Tremella Mushroom. Tremella has been used for centuries for its unmatched cellular hydration, aka healthy glowing skin, by holding 500 times its weight in water. I get my daily Tremella with Mushy Love Latte. This is Chase and I's delicious mushroom elixir that we formulated from scratch to support healthy, hydrated skin cells, shiny, strong hair, gut health, and robust immunity. My favorite way to enjoy Mushy Love is blended with cold milk. It seriously tastes like liquid graham crackers. You can also enjoy it steamed or blended into your vanilla protein shake or as a cinnamon swirly coffee creamer. To grab yours, go to getmushylove.com and use the code medicine, M-E-D-I-C-I-N, for a nice discount. Cheers to aging gracefully and naturally. So that's one for me is is just piggybacking off the purity culture aspect. And then two is is onto that identity piece. It is so critically important about what other people think of you. And you know, I was a successful athlete in this Christian community. I was a good student, you know, good-looking kid and my family was of of importance for whatever that means in that community and so I felt a big pressure to be successful and that's still with me today. And mm-hmm what I do in the world, how successful I am in the world. Um, I'm constantly dealing with this feeling of I'm not enough yet and that I haven't succeeded enough yet. And that the only way for me to have some level of reconciliation with the amount of things that I haven't done yet to be enough is to flog myself because I'm a sinner. And I realize that I've broken away from that theology, but that's, but that's what was programmed is that, hey guys, you're all innately bad. You're innately sinful. But if you flog yourself enough and you ask for forgiveness enough, you can start the day anew back at zero. You'll never get back. You'll you'll never get to where you want to be. But as long as you just keep asking uh, and keep saying, I'm fucked up and I'm sorry that you'll be fine and you'll get to heaven someday. And so that Mm -hmm. programming, it's still in my nervous system, you know, and it, Mm -hmm. it takes a spiritual practice for me. And that's one of the reasons why. I ultimately came back to a spiritual life and have found such beauty and mysticism and, and more esoteric versions of Christianity is because there's this idea that we may actually just be originally neutral, not originally sinful, maybe originally blessed even, right? Because we have this potential mm-hmm. to to blossom into something more abundant and leave this world uh, from a place of, of 
more love than we came into it with. And and so that's where I get inspiration, but it still takes a practice to be able to override that feeling of haven't done enough yet, haven't done enough yet. God, I need to flog myself because I'm still not living up to the expectations that are that are put upon me. And so those two attributes, kind of the purity culture and the original sin idea, um, have really they just they just sink into your nervous system. And they play out in your life events and you go, damn it, I left I left yeah. the religion 10 years ago and I'm still living out those patterns. Yeah, I compare it to like a, a brain tumor that has tentacles all through the brain and it's inoperable. Like, uh, and you just hope that radiation will, you know, make it shrink. Yeah. I compare it to that where, you know, some people um, callously say, you know, it's not real. You know, you stop and believing in Santa Claus and next year it was fine. Like get over it. Um, but it's not the same because our religion, like you say, just sunk into every aspect of our lives, right down to what you did before you ate and, you know, how, who you could be friends with and how much money you could make and how much money you had to give and what you did on the weekends and, yeah. you know, who you can marry. Right. Uh, you need to have kids, you know, um, all in every little aspect of our lives. Um, it's like being, you know, programmed, like you say, or brainwashed, and it takes a lot of effort, maybe even a lifetime. Like I I imagine I'll probably struggle till my dying day with wanting to maybe sell my art and ask for, for more money and feeling guilty about that. Uh so it's it's uh th- that's just something, but I'm aware of it and I'm I'm doing the work. I'm putting the work mm-hmm. in to heal myself of of that stuff. But yeah, you know. So uh, I always suggest therapy. Get a get a good coach. Um, talk, communicate. Um, you know, read books. Uh, go to conferences. Do whatever you can to to heal yourself because it is because it is up to you. Yeah. And so that's what I did, and and it really did help. But mm. uh, it it takes work. Well, I will give you the feedback that you deserve it, my friend, because you are doing just incredible work yeah, in it. Yeah. it. You know, a, a, literally a, a piece of art from you can change an entire day and then cha- change an entire <laughs> mindset. For me, it could it could change yeah. literally a twenty four hour period of the way that I look at something. And and wow. um, you know, to 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 be in that space of you know abundance, right? I think it's the coined phrase in spirituality that gets thrown out probably way too often. Um, but with those those levels of abundance, and let's say you you your art and your your upcoming book on on you know fuck purity culture makes you millions <laughs> and millions and millions of dollars, there there will be this n- new level of impact that will be available to you, mm-hmm. and that's what I see as really really exciting about working through even that story that you've told yeah. yourself is that there is a new version, there's a new lens to be able to impact. And and again, this isn't some scorekeeping activity. If you want to spend it all and go vacationing, you know, you definitely should. When you take stumbling blocks and turn them into stepping stones, mm-hmm. you're given a, another vertical. You're giving yourself an opportunity to live out your life from just a different frame. And so that's what excites me about, mm-hmm. you know, not only sharing some of the things that are challenging to me and what I still find inspiration and in working through those um, mm-hmm. with but but also mm-hmm. you know for you is that there is just a new vertical to see opportunity through when when leaning into those things that that seem challenging 
Well, that that's the thing is um, I want to help more people. Mm-hmm. Like I really do want to help more people. It's not that I just want more people to buy my art. I want more people to see my cartoons, see my work, because I do hear stories like that from people every day uh, that a cartoon or something totally, you know, broke their heart or made them cry or made them feel loved or seen or, or whatever. So that really is behind yeah. it all is yeah. I want, I want to help people, yeah. but uh, yeah, but the mind can really, you know, mind fucks are mind fucks and they call <laughs> them that for a reason. No doubt. Speaking of your art, I, I shared one of your um, cartoons on my story a couple of days ago. Um, and we mentioned in our stories like, Hey, we're really excited to be interviewing the naked pastor. If you guys aren't following him yet, definitely look into his page and most of the time I, you know, everyone is like, oh, he's so great. I love this. I love this. And, but for the first time a couple of days ago, I, I got someone uh, respond to my story, a woman who I don't think read your caption. I don't think she looked at your page. I think she just saw my story post. It was the one with the big peach, you know, it was like the couple that was engaging, yeah, in, a, yeah. engaging in a sexy Sunday and you covered it up. There was a big peach there, but there was like this image of like this proverbial church sort of uh, presence behind them saying like, Hey, yeah. you know, God is very jealous that you're not thinking about him or something along those lines. <laughs> yeah. And it was hilarious. And I didn't think twice about putting it on my story. And she didn't read the caption. Um, I, I, I assume because you explain exactly in there, like where this mm-hmm. is coming from in a very beautiful way. It wasn't a, in a confrontational way at all. And she had said something like, so it seems to me that he's making a mockery of God and the church. Is that right? And I could, I could hear the, the, the bit of, you know, it wasn't like, so what, so what's going on here? It was like, so, you know, that's what it kind of sounded like. What would you, how do you respond to people? I'm sure you get all sorts of comments on uh, the full spectrum of comments, I'm sure. But what do you say to people who claim that you're making a mockery of God and the church? I'm in this weird margin where I'm, I'm not in the church, but I'm not fully out either sort of thing. I'm, I'm not in, I'm not in the system church. But I'm I'm on the margins somehow. I'm still playing the game. I'm not wearing the uniform. I you know I'm not following the rules. <laughs> I don't have a coach, but I'm still in the game, and I'm annoying a lot of people. But I'm also <laughs> you know uh, helping a lot of people, mm-hmm. and I care about the church. There, I said it. The church is here to stay. I I don't believe in banning religion or you know banning the church not going to work and it's not going to happen. Um, we know the church ha- is this has this incredible ability to survive. Um, and uh, it, if it gets persecuted, it goes under underground and spreads. It just has this weird capability. And, and so my only contention is, can we just please do it in a healthy manner? Like if we're going to do it, let's do it in a healthy manner. Yeah. And so what, and so what I'm, I'm doing is I'm criticizing anything that prohibits or limits our personal freedom to be our authentic selves. I feel that's our right as, as human beings is to become our, uh, is to have the freedom to become our most authentic self. And the church often prevents that from happening. 
prohibits it from happening. And, and one of the areas is uh, sexually, right? Um, and there's, you know, because I did grow up being taught that you had to think about God every second of the day. And if you didn't, then, you know, there's hell right over there. You better be careful. And, and so that's what that cartoon came out of was uh, there are a lot of people who can't just enjoy one another's bodies because somehow it's carnal and worldly and secular and, and therefore unholy and that God's upset and disappointed and jealous, you know, because you're not thinking about him 24 seven. And, and so I'm, that's what I'm challenging is that kind of idea for me. Uh, you know, like Lisa and I have been studying tantrism and tantric sex and all that. And it's not about the sex. It's about being present. It's just about being present, including when you're having sex. It's just about being present and your mind's not somewhere else. You're enjoying your body. You're enjoying their body. You're enjoying the moment. And there's no goal. There's, you know, there's no ambition. There's just enjoyment in the present moment. And that's how we should live life, including our sex lives. And, and so that's a lot of people can't just enjoy the moment because their mind immediately goes, I wonder what God's thinking right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's, that's what I'm, I'm challenging. Um, I think, I think we, that's our right. And it's our privilege and our responsibility to figure out how to be our most authentic selves and how to be present in the moment right now here in our bodies. And, and um, I think that's sacred. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's beautiful. Um, one of the things that we've been doing of late, and it was not a part of our upbringing, it was not a part of most of our relationship, but we've leaned into art as a spiritual practice mm -hmm. and we've mm. been painting and um cool. our our great friend and teacher paul check has has uh introduced us to you know art therapy and uh, it's just Mandalas. become a, a beautiful practice for us and have so Did many you say mandala mandala yeah mandala. oh yeah interesting yeah. and it's been just an incredible way to connect with ourselves through uh, at a higher level you know and an experience presence like you're articulating um what for you has art been and what do you see it being for others uh, in it as it adds to a life of abundance and fulfillment and presence for me everybody's creative i don't think anybody can say i'm not creative everybody's creative in some way from maybe the way they dress or the way they talk or the way they think to things they make like from a cake to uh, a huge canvas or a sculpture or music or a poem or whatever everybody is creative so for me Creativity is 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 enjoying that freedom to be your authentic self and to express that in some way, and to find a piece of paper or a piece of canvas and paint or whatever and just throw it down, like just experiment. I mean, I remember some years ago, I felt like I was in a rut creatively. Um, I I I'm really good at watercolor. I can paint watercolors, no problem. And I was painting watercolor landscapes. And after a while, I'm thinking, you know, I've I've always been intimidated by abstract painting and thought, mm -hmm. I'm going to try abstract painting. And I was scared. And uh, so I bought canvases. I got a big spreadsheet, like a big, uh, you know, 
canvas sheet to lay down on the floor. And I just got a bunch of paint and I just started flinging and throwing and spraying mm-hmm. and scratching and scraping. <laughs> and I came up with some abstract paintings that I actually like. And it broke something in me. It broke a fear mm-hmm. and it broke a barrier. And it actually produced some art, you know. So um, I, I just encourage people. Uh, and and so what that did for me was it didn't just produce art. It It taught me that a lot of my limitations are right here. Mm-hmm. So figure out a way to do it. I mean, get a broomstick in a box and start beating the box up. Do something, <laughs> anything, just to express yourself. And you might be surprised how it, it breaks something. Since something new might be born in you, you know, uh, a new level, a new season, a new, you know, phase, you know, a new insight. And so that that for me is what art is about. Not just looking at it, but but making it. Yeah, oh, beautiful. Yeah, totally feel that. It's it's uh, definitely been um, really enjoyable, and it's just when we first started the first mandala that we painted at a workshop together. You know, you're so critical of every line and every paint splotch or whatever, and you're just like, oh, I, it's not supposed to look like that, at least for me. Like I, I have right. sort of like, I love the details. I love tiny little details, like the the skinniest <laughs> brush possible. I want those details. Right. And if it's not coming out the way that I want, I sometimes can get hard on myself. Like, no, this isn't, I'm supposed to be able to take a picture of this and like show people and be proud of it. But there is also... I would say the larger piece of me that just wants to play and mm-hmm. just wants to like express, you know, my inner child and just play without judgment. And it's mm-hmm. been, it's been a lesson for me. Uh, you know, the art is the medium by which I'm learning the lesson, but the lesson is to let my inner child play and not to judge myself so harshly over mm-hmm. something that doesn't actually matter. And um it's it's so wonderful when you when you are open to the lessons that something yeah. like painting or creativity or drawing or whatever music has for you if we're paying attention to them. Oh, the, there's so many lessons. I mean, it's it has taught me so much about my addiction to the right now. I'm I I need things done now. I need to be able to get them done now. I need yeah. I need a completed project and with an ETA, I need it from you. I'm going to give it to you. That's the way mm-hmm. that my world has worked. And mm-hmm. with art and with having an, a piece that we're working on all the time, it's so beautiful to watch what time does to that end result of the art piece. Because if I mm-hmm. consolidated that into a three-hour window where I'm you know, on a canvas painting, the outcome is going to look significantly different than if I take a week on it. Why? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. I, I have it in the house, you know, over the course of the day and it's, you know, maybe 25% done. And I see something that I might want to add to it just because of the angle of where it's at or the energy that's coming off of it in our home. Or I might sleep on something and, you know, how the intuition works and the subconscious works is that it'll just give you a little nugget every now and then without even trying to pull, uh, yeah. you know, pull from your brain at all. And you're like, oh my God, I want to add that to the to the art piece. Mm-hmm. And this idea, this this fraudulent idea that everything has to be done immediately and that you need to get a deliverable out. Um, Of course, that's 10 years in a corporate uh, environment for me um, has been such, you can tell me something and someone could have told me that 
four years ago, like not everything has to be done immediately. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, cool. Got it. No, makes sense. But until you actually feel that, until you have that experiential gnosis, it's like, oh, I get it now. I get it mm-hmm. because it, it it actually is felt inside of my body. And the end result would not have been even near what it was and how powerful it is had I consolidated that into a, mm-hmm. a, a timeline that had an ETA uh, or, a, or a ETC, I think is the the phrase associated with it. And so, God, right. it's such a fun modality. Of course, observing art is is as powerful. Um and you throw humor in there, which I, I say this often, but especially as it pertains to your your art mixed with humor, so often we're afraid to look at things in our own life and our own past because we think it'll make us cry. But how often with the right medicine, the right modality, we'll end up healing through laughing when mm-hmm. we thought we would have to heal through crying. And that's something that I just love about the way that you deliver your art. Is that there is a, a flare of hilariousness to it. And sometimes. Um, yeah. Sometimes I just have <laughs> so much gratitude and respect for the work that you do, my friend. Thanks. Thanks, man. Yeah, no, that whole thing about um spontaneity is so important. Um like when I sit down to or stand, I stand when I paint, but when I stand to start a new watercolor, I don't have a plan. I mean, sometimes I have commissions where they want a certain kind of thing, but most of the time. When I start a watercolor, I don't have a plan. I don't know what I'm going to paint. So it's all very, I have all the paint there, the water's there, the brushes are there, the the paper's there. But I just like, okay, here we go. Prussian blue. You know, and then I just go for it. Mm. That's the way it was with the abstracts, you know. So same with my whole Sophia series. I wrote a book, The Liberation of Sophia. There's 59 drawings of Sophia in there. Um, and every one of them wasn't planned, mm-hmm. but it was a cathartic experience for me every week while my wife, wife was working shift work at night to to draw these Sophia images without a plan. I just sat down with my pen and pencil and eraser and started drawing. Mm-hmm. And uh, it it healed me. It took a couple mm-hmm. of years of drawing those, but it was healing and cathartic in a in a very real way. So... I know for a fact that art can heal, not just looking at it, but making it and don't judge it. It's your baby. So you don't judge your baby and just, just enjoy it. You know, even if nobody else sees it, I, and I recommend a book too. This is one of my top 10. Now, Rick Rubin has a new book out Mm. called the creative act. It's so good. It's just so good. So uh, I would recommend that to people who are struggling with creativity. Yeah, mm, great yeah, recommendation. Definitely. We'll yeah. put that in the show notes. We just appreciate this conversation so much for ourselves, obviously, but also for the many listeners I know who are in a state of mid deconstruction or just starting to, or maybe this conversation invites them into asking more questions. As we come to a close here, if there was a billboard that every person on earth would see who maybe was in this deconstructive phase, what would you tell that person as a note of encouragement? You're already there. That's mm. what I tell people. You're gonna, you're struggling now, you're confused, you're anxious, you're afraid. Um, and it's a real mind fuck when you don't believe in hell anymore, but you're afraid you might go there because you don't believe in it. <laughs> yeah. And 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 you know, people are struggling with all this kind of confusing stuff going on. And um, 
loneliness and leaving the church and all that. And, and, and a lot of people deconstructing still have that religious impulse that they've got to do the right thing in order to get to the goal of perfection or righteousness or whatever it is. One day though, you're going to realize you're okay. You're okay. And you've always been okay. You're, you're already there. You're going to get there and realize I've been here the whole time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I hope that helps some people um, feel a little bit of relief of the tension of the feeling, the need to, becoming something or yeah. getting somewhere you're already there you're already perfect and um i think that's what deconstruction is is getting it's deconstruction it's removing things getting things out of the way so that it's just you left yeah without all the baggage and it's you're already there though you just don't see it yet mm -hmm. so. yeah beautiful. that's beautiful love that Thank you so much, my friend. It's been so great to connect with you and, and especially after the years of, of consuming your incredible content and your artwork. Uh, where can people find you? What are you working on um, so that people can can uh, stay connected with you and look for upcoming books or, or works that you have? Yeah, well, it's great meeting you guys and hanging out. I, I think we'd be great friends. So, yes. um, and maybe we are. We are. We, are. we already uh, are. Yeah, we already are. Um, well, if you search for naked pastor, you'll find me, but make sure it's one word. If you Google naked pastor, <laughs> you're going to, it's a kink gonna, for somebody out there. Yeah. yeah you're, you're going to see, you know, that different types of artwork, but it's not, that's not me. So naked pastor, one word and nakedpastor.com. That's home base for me. And I'm on every social media platform you can think of. And I'm really good at responding to direct messages and messages and emails and everything. I respond to all those. And so if you want to reach out, um, give it a shot and I'll, I'll respond. I promise. So yeah, it's been great talking with you guys and it's been a lot of fun. Mm, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. I know this conversation resonated with our listeners. Thank you so much for being here and hanging out with us. You guys check out the naked pastor one word. Of course, we will have all the links in the show notes for you. Follow him on Instagram, get more laughs into your life, share his stuff. It's amazing. And it's, it's added so much joy to our life. We will talk to you next time. Go spread some light. Okay. Bye. Hey friend. Thanks for listening. Did you hear anything today that expanded your mind, made you laugh? touched your soul, or caused you to think differently about this topic? I hope so. I invite you to share this episode with someone you love. It takes 30 seconds and has the potential for a great ripple effect. Our world needs more people having real, honest, and open-minded dialogue on big topics. And you never know, you may just change their entire day. We love you and appreciate you being here with us. Cheers.